Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, students and professors of Carnegie Mellon University have been leaving their mark on the world, and now they're taking it a bit further by leaving their mark on the moon. Red Whitaker is a roboticist and a professor at CMU, and he's led teams in building self-driving vehicles long before Elon Musk, and now he's helping students land a rover on the moon in search of water. It's Monday, April 4th. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. Can I call you Red? Is that oh, the... Anybody who calls me William or Bill is a, a cold call insurance salesman. Oh, okay. Okay, good. <laughs> Well, Red, with with moon and space exploration, what's the ultimate goal? So you're sending this rover up to to the moon. Are we looking for places to run to once we've kind of like made Earth inhabitable? The holy grail of the moon is an abundance of water ice that exists at its poles. And this is the big, big discovery since Apollo. And the ice is viewed as the most valued resource in the solar system because you can, of course, melt it and drink it, put electric power to it and extract oxygen for breathing. You can take the water and grow with it. And the hydrogen and oxygen can be rocket fuel for going into deeper space. So how does how would we source that water for... Other things, other things in space. Sure. Well, of course, there's, uh, think of it a great deal like oil and gas here on Earth Mm. in that you explore for it, then you extract it, then you process it. And then depending on whether you use it there or uh, send it back to Earth or to space beyond, the incredible benefit of the moon is that its gravity is so low that it doesn't take very much propulsion to escape and go wherever you want. Well, Carnegie Mellon is getting ready to send its first rover, Iris, to the moon. And how do you go about sending a rover into space? What you need is enough propulsion to get you out of Earth's gravity and into free float. Then when you get close enough, the moon's gravity captures and you go into orbit around there. And then uh, after a couple of loops, hone it on the target, and land where you choose. You make it sound so simple. Some of the trick in life is to do things that are high degree of difficulty, make them look like there was nothing to them at all. And if things work out, this would be one of those. So once this rover is on the moon, what's what's a day in the life of this rover look like? What is that? Does it just roam around all day? Does it charge? Does it does it rest? What does it do? This rover is an amazing first of kind. So its first micro rover, about the size of a suitcase, weighing only seven pounds on the moon. It's really small. Because of the moon gravity. And once it's there, yes, it is solar powered. Its computers are on, its sensors work, its motors turn, and Yes, it drives. Anytime it's driving, it has a science instrument that is measuring the percentage of water ice beneath it. Hmm. And the idea 
is to map that ice by correlating the robot's idea of where it is on its own map with what it's sensing. And then to use that to go further and further to explore. So the first thing about a day on the moon is that we're used to a week here that is 24-7. But the reality is the sun comes up and sun comes down. And only half that is operational time. On the moon, it's 24-14 because a lunar day is quite long. Yeah. The other is during that 14 out, 14 days, the sun does not go down. So the rover is up and alive and being powered and operating around the clock for the better part of two weeks. No, I can't even. I can't even begin to um, understand what's happening outside of this little rock that I live on. I can't believe that's what it's like on the moon. So, well, let's say that you do discover, you know, water and ice on the on the moon. I I'm kind of wondering, like, what is the next step? Do you send people there to kind of like essentially like kind of terraform the moon? And is the water even? Is it like? Could you pick it up and drink it, essentially? Or are there kind of things in that water that would it make? I, I have no idea. The first is that besides the solar condition I just spoke about, the moon is a pure vacuum, meaning it does not have an atmosphere like we. Mm-hmm. And on Earth, water can be solid in the form of ice, liquid, like in uh, a glass of water. Mm-hmm. or vapor, like in the steam coming out of a tea kettle. And on the moon, there is no liquid form. It goes directly from a solid into a gas, just like dry ice does here. So if you see the stage effects where they put some dry ice out there and the fog comes up, it goes directly from solid to gas. And that is the way it would work on the moon with out good ways to extract it and process it, which are under development now. And you've pushed for a mission control to be here in Pittsburgh on CMU's campus. What's the benefit of having a control center here rather than somewhere else? Well, for starters, one of the problems with humans is that very few of them can stay awake more than three continuous days. And at some point, if they do, they're pretty worthless for really concentrating, making those great decisions. For that reason, it's done in shifts. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, it's not just one team of operators, but it multiples. And you get the idea they have to cycle through the day, every day, throughout the mission. And so you need that critical mass of people that are really good or really know what's going on, really operational. The next is that in something as bold, is something as new as this, anything can happen in the electronics, in the software, and uh, you want, it, it's necessary to know what's going on, troubleshoot that at a technical deeper, deeper level. And for that, there's nothing like the team that actually developed it to do that troubleshooting. And lastly, this isn't a a one-shot deal. Pittsburgh is in the space business. Mm -hmm. And Carnegie Mellon has its earliest mission this year, another, this one in 
year after we're orbiting satellites going to have more and the facility from which to direct that is absolutely essential. The how how much does something like this cost? Because I, you know, I don't know too much about space, but I do know that it's expensive to to get things up there and explore. And so, how much does something like this cost? And and essentially, who's paying for that? Everything is all over and done with maybe four years from beginning to flight. Well, it's probably in the territory of five million. Mm-hmm. Now, just to put it in perspective, the uh, Taxpayers pay about two and a half billion to put a one-ton rover on Mars, at least half a billion to put a federal national rover on the moon. And so you get the idea that this is the most economical planetary rover ever to be conceived. The other is our assertion that small is the next big thing and how those missions become so expensive is that it is more and more and more expensive to send more and more massive things up there. Another way of saying it, the lighter you are, the more economical that you are. Do you feel like your work is in competition with anyone like NASA, Russia, Elon Musk? I I gave that kind of thing up a long time ago. So people think of me as a, too often as a prize junkie in part mm. because uh, it had the experience of inventing the very first autonomous outdoor driving thing decades ago, and then went on to win the driverless urban challenge race, ignited an industry, created a lot of enterprise, put Pittsburgh on the map in that way. But if I don't do anything for a prize. Well, you're someone who pushes the boundaries of what we think is possible. Do you, what do you think is possible in terms of space travel over the next 10, 20, 50 years? I think the great movement in what you might call space tourism is for gone. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, even getting our astronauts up to the space station with SpaceX is a new view. And right now, the federal launch vehicle, Great Rocket, is uh, practicing uh, just going out to the pad and coming back. And it's no secret that Elon Musk and SpaceX have the immense initiative to develop the rocket that will carry our astronauts to the moon. So in the near term, uh, it's, it's real in a way that it hasn't been for 50 years. Pittsburgh is an immense force in robotics. We have had a great run of it. Land, sea, air, underwater, underground. And for Pittsburgh, one of the next frontiers is this high frontier. And these activities and the companies that are springing up around it actually trans Pittsburgh in some ways into a space-bearing entity. Universities like Carnegie Mellon and companies like Astrobotic are clearly space-bearing institutions. So in every area of technical development, research matters, experimentation matters, what really counts is what flies. And you really uh, cross the uh, threshold into the club when you eventually pull off 
things like we're talking today. So it's hard to say where it goes, but it certainly isn't going backwards. Red, thank you so much for your time and your dedication to the exploration of the final frontier space. So good to be with you. A little more news before you go. If you live in Pittsburgh's 19th and 24th legislative districts, you have a special election coming up tomorrow, Tuesday, April 5th. The 19th district includes neighborhoods like downtown, the Hill District, Belsuver, the north side, even parts of the south side. And Democrat Arion Abney is running there unopposed. And in the 24th district, that's Mayor Ed Ganey's old stomping grounds. That's neighborhoods like Homewood, Garfield, East Liberty, Highland Park, parts of Wilkinsburg. Democrat Martel Covington is running against Republican nominee Todd Elliott Coger. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you then. at it and when I read it with my eyes I was like I got it I don't got it I don't ever got it okay <laughs>